This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of the hip anterolateral approach, or the Watson-Jones approach, from the approaches section on orthobullets.com. So as a quick introduction, the Watson-Jones approach provides exposure to the acetabulum and the proximal femur. Indications include total hip arthroplasty, hemiarthroplasty, ORIF of a femoral neck fracture, synovial biopsy of the hip, and a biopsy of the femoral neck. In terms of a total hip arthroplasty, keep in mind that minimally invasive approaches do not improve post-op gait kinematics when compared to the traditional transgluteal approach. Remember that patients at high risk for dislocation may benefit from an anterolateral approach since there is no posterior soft tissue disruption. However, there is some concern that this approach can weaken the abductors and cause limping. Now, let's talk about the intermuscular plane of the Watson-Jones approach, and it's between the tensor fascia lata, innervated by the superior gluteal nerve, and the gluteus medius, also innervated by the superior gluteal nerve. Again, the intramuscular plane of the Watson-Jones, or the anterolateral approach to the hip, is the tensor fascia lata, which is innervated by the superior gluteal nerve, and the gluteus medius, also innervated by the superior gluteal nerve. Now, let's talk about the preparation of the Watson-Jones approach. So in terms of anesthesia, general or spinal-slash-epidural is appropriate. In terms of positioning, this approach is generally performed in the lateral decubitus position. The patient's buttock is close to the edge of the table to let the fat fall away from the incision. The landmarks in this approach include the ASIS, the greater trochanter, and the shaft of the femur. Now let's talk about the approach. In terms of the incision, make the incision starting 2.5 centimeters posterior and distal to the ASIS. As it runs distal, it becomes centered over the tip of the greater trochanter. The incision crosses the posterior one-third of the trochanter before running down the shaft of the femur. Moving on to the superficial dissection, you will incise the fat in line with the incision and clear the fascia lata. You will then incise the fascia in the direction of the fibers. This will be more anterior as you dissect proximal. You will then incise at the posterior border of the greater trochanter. You will then develop the interval between the tensor fascia lata and the gluteus medius. There will be a small series of vessels in this interval. You will then externally rotate the hip to put the capsule on stretch. You will then identify the origin of the vastus lateralis. Moving on to the deep dissection, you will detach the abductor mechanism by one of two mechanisms, a trochanteric osteotomy or partial detachment of the abductor mechanism. In terms of a trochanteric osteotomy, the distal osteotomy site is just proximal to the vastus lateralis ridge. In terms of a partial detachment of the abductor mechanism, you will place a stay suture to prevent muscle split and damage to the superior gluteal nerve. Remember that the nerve is 5 centimeters proximal to the acetabular rim. Next, you will expose the anterior joint capsule and then detach the reflected head of the rectus femoris from the joint capsule to expose the anterior rim of the acetabulum. Remember this is easier with the leg flexed slightly. Next, you will elevate part of the psoas tendon from the capsule perform an anterior capsulotomy, and dislocate the hip with external rotation. Extension of this approach can be done proximally or distally. Proximally, you will incise the fascia lata to allow increased adduction and external rotation of the leg. Distally, you will incise down the deep fascia of the leg. This allows access to the vastus lateralis, which can be elevated to allow direct access to the entire femur. To end this review session, let's talk about some dangers and complications of the Watson-Jones approach. 
The structures to be aware of include the femoral nerve as well as the femoral artery and vein. Potential complications of this approach include an abductor limp and femoral shaft fractures. In terms of risk to the femoral nerve, the most common problem is compression neuropraxia caused by medial retraction. Direct injury can also occur from placing the retractor into the psoas muscle. In terms of the femoral artery and the vein, these can be damaged by retractors that penetrate the psoas. Make sure to confirm that the anterior retractor is directly on bone. An abductor limp can be caused by trochanteric osteotomy and or disruption of the abductor mechanism. Abductor limp can also be caused by denervation of the tensor fascia by aggressive muscle split. Finally, femoral shaft fractures can occur during dislocation, so be sure to perform an adequate capsulotomy. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, A 72-year-old man has a severe limp nine months after undergoing a total hip arthroplasty. He has no pain. He had an anterolateral approach and the incision healed well without prolonged antibiotics or drainage. His legs feel equal when he stands, but he ambulates with a severe Trendelenburg limp and is unable to actively abduct his hip against gravity. What is the most likely cause of his problem? And the choices are 1. Component loosening. 2. Component impingement. 3. Foraminal stenosis at L3, L4. 4. Detached gluteus medius tendon and 5. Neuropathy of the superior gluteal nerve. The correct answer to this question is 4. Detached gluteus medius tendon. So the anterolateral approach to the hip is commonly used for primary total hip arthroplasty in 50 to 65% of cases. The technique requires detachment of a portion of the gluteus medius tendon and then reattachment during closure. In a small percentage of patients, the repair will fail resulting in significant abductor weakness and a Trendelenburg limp. This is often painless after the initial surgical healing time. Component impingement can lead to early wear or dislocation, but would not cause a limp. It is usually painless. Foraminal stenosis could cause isolated weakness, but is much more likely to cause radicular-type symptoms of pain with or without numbness or weakness. Any weakness would be in a nerve distribution pattern, and because the superior gluteal nerve has components from L4, L5, and S1, weakness from root compression would be subtle and incomplete. Dissection of more than 3 cm to 4 cm from the greater trochanter can injure the superior gluteal nerve and result in weakness, but this is much less reported and has been shown to be transient in most cases. Component loosening can cause a limp, but is painful and would produce weakness. Moving on to the next question. A 67-year-old male with severe hip arthritis presents for evaluation of the total hip arthroplasty. The patient is requesting a minimally invasive Watson-Jones approach as he has heard post-operative mobility is significantly improved compared with the traditional transgluteal technique. What should the patient be told to expect regarding early post-operative gait kinematics when comparing these surgical approaches? And the choices are 1. The minimally invasive Watson-Jones approach results in improved gait velocity, cadence, and step length. 2. There is no difference in early gait kinematics between the two approaches. 3. The minimally invasive Watson-Jones approach results in decreased gait velocity and stride length. 4. The traditional transgluteal approach results in worse early gait kinematics. And 5. Early gait kinematics is dependent only on the type of prosthesis used, not surgical approach.
The correct answer to this question is 2. There is no difference in early gate kinematics between the two approaches. So despite the recent enthusiasm for minimally invasive hip surgery, there has been no proven benefit with regards to early postoperative gait kinematics when comparing the minimally invasive Watson-Jones approach with the more traditional transgluteal approach in total hip arthroplasty. The minimally invasive Watson-Jones approach involves making an incision 8 centimeters in length from the anterior tubercle of the greater trochanter on a line running from the trochanteric crest to the anterior superior iliac spine, or ASIS. The interval between the gluteus medius and the tensor fascia lata is then identified, and an extra-articular exposure of the capsule can be obtained. The traditional transgluteal approach involves making a longitudinal incision over the tip of the greater trochanter, followed by superficial dissection in which the fascia lata is split to expose the tendon of the gluteus medius. Deep dissection is carried out by making a longitudinal incision in fibers of the gluteus medius and then detaching the origin of the gluteus minimus from the anterior greater trochanter. Finally, exposure of the anterior joint capsule and capsulotomy can be completed. Pospisil et al. evaluated 20 patients who underwent a primary total hip arthroplasty with use of a minimally invasive modified Watson-Jones approach compared with a group of 20 patients who underwent a total hip arthroplasty with the use of a standard transgluteal hardinge approach. At three months, the authors found no significant benefit for patients who underwent a total hip arthroplasty through a minimally invasive Watson-Jones approach in comparison with those who were managed with the standard transgluteal approach. Fluger et al. compared 50 conventional total hip replacements with 50 procedures performed using the minimally invasive anterolateral modification of the Watson-Jones approach in terms of blood loss and the duration of the operation. They found that both groups were virtually identical with respect to average blood loss and the duration of the procedure. And moving on to the final question, what complication is more likely following excessive medial retraction of the anterior covering structures during the anterolateral or Watson-Jones approach to the hip? And the choices are 1. Numbness over the anterolateral thigh. 2. Ischemia to the leg. 3. Quadriceps weakness. 4. Abductor insufficiency. And 5. Foot drop. The correct answer to this question is 3. Quadriceps weakness. So the femoral nerve is the most lateral structure in the anterior neurovascular bundle. The femoral artery and vein lie medial to the nerve. Retractors placed in the anterior acetabular lip should be safe, although neuropraxia of the femoral nerve may occur if retraction is prolonged or forceful, leading to quadriceps weakness. The femoral artery and nerve are well protected by the interposed psoas muscle. Damage to the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve, causing numbness over the anterolateral thigh, can occur while developing the interval between the tensor fascia lata and the sartorius in the anterior or Smith-Peterson approach, but less likely in the Watson-Jones approach. Superior gluteal injury and accompanying abductor insufficiency may occur during excessive splitting of the glutei during the direct lateral or hardinge approach. Foot drop secondary to sciatic injury is more common with a posterior exposure or posterior retractor placement. That's all for this review about the hip anterolateral approach or the Watson-Jones approach. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, And in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. 
If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.